We're going to pick up in verse 31. If you would uh, stand with me as we honor the, the reading of scripture together. The Jews pick up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we pray that you would bless it this morning as we dig into it, as we talk about some really important truths the relationship between Jesus and the Father as we come to a a fairly complicated portion of of Scripture where Jesus quotes from the Old Testament and and we seek to understand his his point there. Lord, I I pray that you would would guide us. Your spirit would be working and and active in our midst. Lord, we pray that, that you would accomplish in our midst and those hearing that the purpose of the Gospel of John, which is that people may see Jesus and believe. Lord, we pray that you would do all of these things and much more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. We we pick up our text here in, in verse 31. Verse 31 is where we started reading. That's where we left off. But perhaps we did kind of start and and pick up in the middle and we kind of left off one of the most uh, profound verses here that that really help us to understand this portion of the chapter. And, And that verse is verse 30 where Jesus declares himself to be equal with the Father. Well, that isn't exactly what he says. He says, I and the Father are one. Of course... This verse is important in the context here because this is the reason why the the Jews bend down and are picking up stones in order to kill him. The question that we must ask here is, so what did Jesus mean by that statement? 
When he says, I and the Father are, are one, what did he mean? And, and why is it that people were so offended by what he said? Was he asserting that his will was the same as the Father's will? That there was a, a oneness or, or unity in, in mission? I remember studying the Experiencing God study by Henry Blackaby some years ago. I would assume if you are uh, old enough that that study was popular around here as well. He made a a comment in that study that struck out uh, to me. And he said that uh, one was to, to find where God was working, where God was doing something and be a part of that, get involved with that. In other words... We should be uh, unified with the will of God. We should find God's will in a certain area and we should jump in and help to accomplish it. A a great definition of prayer is to align my will with God's will. I, I love that definition of prayer. This is why we pray for our enemies, right? We know that God tells us to love our enemies. We know that that is extremely difficult. In fact, we recognize that it is almost in and of ourselves, it is downright impossible, and we need God's help with that. We can't do it on our own, so we we pray that we would love our enemies. In other words, we are praying in order that we would be unified with God's will in our life. We want to do what God wants us to do. God, let your desires be my desires. That should be our prayer, right? That should be the prayer of the heart. It's really what prayer is. Could it be that when Jesus said those words in verse 30 that he meant something like that? My desire, God's desire, they're the same. Of course he did, right? Of course he, he, of course that he, he meant that. But he also meant a lot more than that. When you think about it, Jesus was saying that there was no one that was more aligned with the will of the Father than he was. Jesus had been speaking about the security of the believer, and he said that the will of the Father and himself was the same. That these, his sheep, would not be snatched away. And in fact, he says that no one would snatch them out of his hand. No one would snatch them out of the Father's hand. There's unity of will. Now, some people that deny the doctrine of eternal security like to stop here and they like to point out that this is what was meant in verse 30 is is that there is a a unity of will and how they define that is is desire. There's a unity of desire that Jesus desired none to be snatched out of his hand, none none to be snatched out of the Father's hand. There's a unity of will, but that doesn't necessarily affect the actions of the sheep. The sheep might do that. They might jump out. They might leave. They might sin so much that, that they can get out. But the Father's will, the Father's desire is that they stay there, that they're there. Of course, that's not how we interpreted it last time, but that's how some do. The sheep might not be snatched away, but they could leave if they wanted to. They might not be snatched, but if there was such rebellion in their heart, they wouldn't be saved anymore. 
Do you see what I'm saying? When Jesus says that he and the Father are one, he means they're one in will, in desire. His desired will, we could say, meaning that he and the Father desire the same things. He isn't saying that these things are actually going to happen. One writer who believed that one could lose their salvation points out in verse 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And his point here is that there is a condition to being Jesus' sheep. And that condition is to hear the voice of Jesus. You got to hear the, the shepherd. If you hear the shepherd, then you're a sheep. Those that hear the voice of Jesus then become the sheep. That is the condition. And if one stopped listening to the voice of the shepherd, then they would perish because they would not be his sheep anymore. Do you you see the argument? To be a sheep, you hear the shepherd. If you stop listening to the shepherd, you're not a sheep anymore. Now that sounds pretty good. It sounds pretty good until you start reading the text. And by the way, it does sound a lot like one's salvation rests on their ability to be faithful, which is not good. The problem here is that we, as sheep, will never listen enough. Even the redeemed continue to fall short. But the text says something farly different than this, far different than this. That argument falls very short. Just in the the statement that Jesus makes there in verse 27. Listen to it. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. He doesn't say and he doesn't even allude or apply in any slight way that one becomes a sheep by hearing. He says that those are his sheep already and those sheep hear his voice. Get that. You don't hear the voice of the shepherd if you're not a sheep. He's simply saying that those are his sheep. They're already his sheep. They hear his voice. Now the question, why are those his sheep in the first place? Verse 29, he makes it abundantly clear. These are his sheep and they will hear his voice because the father has given them to him. Context matters. Where Where am I going with all of this? Well, first of all, the text is important. Context is important So many that let their preconceived ideas about theology just explain texts away when the meaning in that actual text is very clear. Second, Jesus is saying in verse 30 that he and the Father are one. It is more than his will. It is a unity in power. Get this. Their wills are the same and their power is the same. Jesus' statement of unity with the Father comes after he says that no one is able, get that word, able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Then he says, the Father is greater. (laughs) This is a statement concerning power. Power. There's nobody who is all powerful except God. There's none greater. And there's none able to snatch them out of his hand either. There's no one that can do it. Maybe if you were a, you're pretty powerful, but not quite as powerful as God, maybe you could. But if you're the Father's hand, nobody can snatch you out of his hand either. Why? Because they are one and the same. 
The power of the Father is the power of the Son. You can't pit the power of the Son against the power of the Father. This is the greatness of the doctrine of the Trinity. They're one in being, in essence. Their power is the same. We mean that there is none more great. There is none more powerful. He is all-powerful. We are saying this of the Son and of the Father because they are one. Yes, there's unity in will. Of course there's unity in will. God's will is simple. That those who are His, those who He has known, those who He has loved from eternity past, those that are His that eventually will hear His voice, it is these that are in the hand of an all-powerful God. None is more powerful and He has you. And, he, and nothing is going to let you escape. Nothing's going to rip you from his hand. That should be incredibly comforting to a sinner. And when I say sinner, I mean me. I mean, yes, I'm a saint. Saved by grace. I'm his, his righteousness imputed to me. But just the same, I am yet in this life a wretched, recovering sinner. But yet a a sinner. I haven't arrived yet. And if there is any reason why the Lord of glory would let me out of his hand, why he would want me out of his hand, it would be my constant failures. It would be my continuous struggle in the pursuit of holiness. My constant failures, my two steps backward and one step forward mentality at times. The times when I fall and debate on even getting back up, is it worth it? Yes, there's times when I take three or four good steps forward in in the Christian life, but that never seems to last. The Christian life is extremely frustrating at times. But my point is that there's unity here in in verse 30, and it's a unity that if will, Father desires this, but it's a unity of power. And that is made clear in the text. Let me just say something else about will here. Where I am constantly trying to have the same mind of of Christ, right? My job in the Christian life is to align my will with God's will. I want there to be unity there. Paul sets this up in Philippians chapter two, where he's trying trying to align my will. Let your mind be the same as Christ Jesus. But that isn't what we mean here. That's not what is meant in verse 30. As if Jesus is somehow trying to align his will with God's will. What Jesus means is that his will and the Father's will are one will. They're the same. That's hard to grasp, but it's basic good Trinitarian theology. You can't separate that. The Father and the Son are one in essence. They're one in being. One will. Now just think about the implications of this. Right? All of that was basically last time. But think about the implications of this. If Jesus and the Father are truly one in substance, in essence, meaning that there is unity of will, of power, then there must be unity or equality and glory as well. In other words... And Jesus will say this very clearly, like in chapter 14, that if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. For Jesus is God. Notice something else. 
And that is that since Jesus is God, right, these are implications, we can have forgiveness of sins because his death had infinite merit. Jesus is God. He is able to save anyone that comes to him in faith. Why? Because he's not just a human. He's not just a good teacher. He is actually God. There are so many ramifications here. Just think about the the circumstances in life that we find ourselves in. Good circumstances, bad circumstances. Sometimes we think that we have really gotten the short end of the stick when it comes to, to life. The fact is, Jesus lived for us and he lived far above circumstances. And it is in Christ that the circumstances of life do not define us. Christ defines us. Not only do we have victory in this life over what it holds and the circumstances of it, but we also have victory in the next life. We have victory over death. And this is all tied to the fact that Jesus is God. It is God who raised him from the the dead. And if he was not a, a perfect sacrifice, then he wouldn't have been raised in victory. In other words, it is only in Jesus that we have a great hope of resurrection after this life. Why? Because he is God. Let me say all of this a little differently. When we come to to praise and worship, we do that because of what we know of him. The more we know of God, the more we know of what he's like, his attributes, his goodness, his wisdom, his great love for us, the more we will praise him for who he is. Just think about the, the one that is suffering, perhaps with, with cancer. I just got word the other day that a, a girl that graduated a year of head of me in, in high school uh, died of, of cancer. Her funeral was, I didn't know she was sick, but her, her funeral was in, in my hometown and it was in my home church and the pastor of that church is doing the funeral. She didn't attend there. I'm guessing since it's in that church and that pastor's doing it, she didn't attend anywhere. I read that she, and this is from the obituary, that she fought a a courageous battle with cancer for four years. Most of us can't comprehend what those four years would be like. Some of us here have a pretty good idea of what some of it is like, but also can't imagine fighting that kind of fight without the Lord Jesus. One pastor received a a poem from an elderly parishioner six months before she passed away. She was suffering from a a prolonged bout with cancer. I just want to read a little bit of what she wrote. She said this, I read the Psalms yet when my eyes could read, and I discovered, oh, so many ways that the great psalmist felt the urge and need to magnify God in psalms of praise. Praise is effort, both when times are good and happiness fills our hearts, and in dark times when they're not fully understood. When it's hard to say, I will praise, I will, I will, a conscious effort. I will praise, I will love thee, I will extol thee, I will rejoice and make a joyful noise. Yes, I will praise thee. I will praise the Lord with my heart and my soul. But once the songs of praise roll off my tongue, 
I will then serve him with gladness and with joy. Praise ye the Lord, not just me. All nations praise his name, sing of his mercy, and make known his goodness. And just think about what she wrote. I mean, we recognize that a, a word, a poem, statement like that does not, cannot come easily. We'd be foolish and out of touch with reality to think that it did. But what it does is it, it comes through a, a knowledge and a love of God as we see him so clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is one of those situations that as Robert Murray McShane says, we look to Christ 10 times for every time we look at ourselves. We don't wallow in our own situation, our own circumstances, but we look to Christ. We look to him. And when we look to Christ, no matter how difficult it is, there is reason to praise. It's an effort. She's right, it's an effort. It's hard. But when we start looking to Christ and who he is, he's one with the Father. He's equal. Equal in will, equal in power, and equal in glory. And if he's equal in glory, when we look to him, we see the Father. And when we look to him and we see the Father, we praise. We worship. So thinking about our our text here, right, with that context, that built in, Jesus made his, his claim to be one with the Father. We talked a little bit about that means. We talked about some implications of it. But I want you to see here through Jesus' argument then as he responds to the Jews who are picking up stones to stone him. So these, these, these Jews, these religious leaders are, are bending down, picking up stones, getting ready to stone him and Jesus is going to come back with a threefold argument why you shouldn't stone me. Isn't that something? What would you do? I'd run. <laughs> I'd run. Obviously, though, these Jews, they thought Jesus' words for blasphemy, they said that. But get this, it wasn't blasphemy if what Jesus was saying about himself was true, right? Jesus is saying, what I'm saying is true. So these pick up stones again to stone him. This wasn't the first time you remember that. Jesus then said, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? In other words, Jesus is answering their claim of blasphemy by saying that he had done nothing deserving of stoning. A penalty for blasphemy. Notice the language that John uses here. The Jews pick up stones, but they don't, it doesn't say that they say anything. But Jesus understood what they were saying by picking up stones. And the text reads, and Jesus answered them. By picking up stones, they were claiming that what Jesus said was blasphemy, so Jesus answered. And the first thing he says 
to them there is that he hadn't done anything to deserve this penalty. Jesus was well justified, right, in playing this card, this argument. I want you to think about it for a moment. A person comes to you and says that they can help you with a certain need. Say, a website for your business. And you hear their, their spiel, their, their claim to all the things that they can do and, and how great it's going to be. But really, in the end, what matters to you is that you see that person's work. You actually see what they say that they can do and how it works. And you hear from other people, right? You go to them and you say, okay, is this guy's claims true? Is this what he's saying, right? You do all of that before you, you buy the website. You don't just take it on his claim. A child, right, tells you that they're going to go and clean their room. They go and they come back in 15 minutes and they say, hey, I'm finished. My room is in perfect shape. And the mom says, great, that's really good. Let me go check. <laughs> because she, rever- she, she holds judgment until she's seen the room. Jesus made a a great claim here that he was one with the Father, something that was clearly understood by his listeners. This is why they're bending down, picking up stones. But what's the evidence? You see, Jesus' claim isn't that there wasn't, that this claim was unverified. Jesus is saying it had been backed up. Jesus healed the sick, he cured leopards, He, he taught thousands of people with authority of one that they had never seen the likes of before. The list goes on and on and on. And Jesus simply asks, for which one of these works are you attempting to stone me for? He's pointing to the evidence that verified his claim. Now what happens next is something that we've seen the the religious leaders do before. They, They skip over the issue at hand, the real issue, and they say something that, they say, well, we're not gonna stone you for any of those works, but what you've, you know, any of those works that you've done, but we're going to stone you for blasphemy. We're going to stone you for what you said. Remember when Jesus healed the paralyzed man and told him to take up his bed and go, and the man did, and the religious leaders saw this, and all they cared about was the fact that he violated their law by carrying the bed on the Sabbath. The fact that the person had been healed of a lifelong infirmity didn't seem to matter to them. What was mattered is that Jesus broke their law. They, they missed the issue. They missed the point. It didn't matter. Not only is this a tactic of the Jews of Jesus' day, but it's very similar today. Not that people would pick up stones, but they do dismiss Jesus very quickly. They're they're quick to to admit that Jesus is a good teacher, that Jesus did some great things, that we must follow his teaching, but they dismiss his claim to being God and the rightful ruler of their life. That could be you this morning. If you're here or you're listening and you've, thought of Jesus, right? He's a good teacher. He's a good, I embrace this. He's a moral example. I need to follow him. I need to do better. All of these things. But when it comes to Jesus's claim of being God and equal with God in glory and the one that came to to save you from your sin and has right to your life, you stop short. You don't trust that. You don't buy into it. Now, the next part of Jesus' argument seems pretty complex at first, but it isn't that bad. Notice they say that they're not faulting Jesus for his action. They're just they're saying, I'm not talking about your actions. We're talking about your words. So Jesus responds to that 
by quoting from Psalm 82. And now the point that Jesus is making here is that there is nothing about his words that would condemn him. Right? They're saying, you're not condemned for your actions, you're condemned for your words. Jesus is saying, wait a minute, my words don't condemn me. And at first, Jesus' argument here, by quoting from the Old Testament, seems to, to water down his claim to absolute divinity because he is saying that in the Old Testament, the term gods, small g, was applied to mortal men. But we need to go back and look at the, the text that he is talking about and then the context of that a little bit. And I'll just quickly go through this. Psalm 82, verse 6. There we read, I said, you are gods. Son of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, the important phrase here, right? You are gods, talking about people. And what he's talking about in the the context, these gods, he's referring to the judges of Israel. He's not talking about all people. He's talking about a specific group of people, the judges of Israel. And we know that the judges of Israel were not divine. They weren't gods in any sense. But we know that God put them in that role to take on that task. It was a a holy position. A position that God placed them in for a certain time, a certain reason to exercise the authority and power of God in that situation. The Jews knew this. Right? This is the Jew, this is basic for the Jews. So when Jesus quoted this, they knew the psalm and they knew what it was talking about. So Jesus says that he too was put by God into the world for a certain reason. He had a divine mission, as the judges did. And if the and if the word gods can be used of mere men, how much more appropriate would it be used of Jesus, who is actually God incarnate, not just somebody that God put in place for a special task? Does that make sense? So Jesus isn't denying that he is God. He isn't watering down his unity with the Father that we've already talked about. He was only denying that he was that he had spoken anything deserving of blasphemy. In fact, he is saying that he was totally justified in using that kind of language, speaking about himself, because he is God. Now Jesus makes a a third argument based on uh, the others, since there was uh, nothing in the, the words that deserve stoning, and since these didn't dismiss his works, he says that the works should have led them to faith in Christ. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. It's extremely interesting here that Jesus takes this whole conversation with the Jews, right? They're bending down, picking up stones, going to kill him. I would be running. And Jesus is evangelizing them. Get that here. He's not just defending himself. He's evangelizing them. He gives them an invitation to believe. Essentially here, Jesus is saying, you might not like me, you might not like the things I've said, but take a look at the evidence. 
Look at the good works. They show that the Father is in me and I in the Father. It shows that the unity of both will and power and the response ought to be to glorify Jesus by believing in him. Right? The glory that is due the Father, it is due the Son. The evidence shows this. Glorify the Son by believing in him. Trusting in him for eternal life. These are people that made some tremendous, I mean, let me say this again. There are people that have been making some tremendous claims, these people, during the life of Jesus, right? There's other people. Jesus is not the only one making claims. He's not the only one claiming to be the Messiah. The the Jewish, the religious leaders are dealing with all sorts of things. There are those who are claiming to be the Jewish answer to to the Roman occupation. Some of these had followers. Followers. There were others that said they were from God. They were religious charlatans, as it were. And the Jews of the time are navigating all of this. And it is in the midst of this that Jesus says, seriously. Look at any of these others. They might make bold claims, but look at their life. Look at my life. There's no fault in me. Jesus spoke like no other. He was obedient to the law. The religious leaders were quick to point to blasphemy or making himself out to be God, but they were missing something very important in all of this. What if his claims were true? Jesus is saying here, if you would just allow for the possibility and look at what Jesus has said, coupled by his his works, the, the fruit of his life, it would show that Jesus is who he claimed to be. In fact, this is why John wrote his gospel. If you haven't noticed, John's gospel is a bit different than the others. It's more theological for one. We've noticed that, haven't we? I mean, there are some deep theological subjects embedded in its verses. I mean, all of the big doctrines. Going along that with one of the major themes in the gospel is is Christology, the doctrine of Christ, It shows the the true nature of Christ. He is the Christ. He is God, right? This is seen in uh, different places like the the seven I am statements would be a good example here. But also the passage that we're studying this morning, very very Christological. Even though John's gospel contains some deep and important things, especially about the nature of Jesus, the overall purpose and why John is doing that and why he's talking about the deep theological things concerning Christ The purpose of John for writing it is that people might take a look at Jesus. They might look to him like he's challenging the the religious leaders to do. Look at Jesus. Look at the deep things, the theological things that they, they look to. Look at his claims. See his works. Come to the realization that Jesus is actually God incarnate. That he is indeed all wise, all powerful. And in love he came to give his life for sinners. And that he would save anyone that places their faith and trust in him. Believe. That's the purpose for the gospel. Now at the end of the chapter, we see something really telling here. We see Jesus' invitation to faith. We see how Jesus loved those enough that sought to to kill him, to eventually die for them. I mean, in essence, that's what Jesus was saying, right? He was saying, if you place your faith and trust in me, I'll die for you. I'll I'll deal with your sin. 
So what was their response? Well, their response was quite possibly the same as some hearing this this morning. They might double down and they might not believe. They might dig their heels in. They might, as the text says, seek to arrest him and continue in their unbelief. But then we learn as they seek to arrest him that Jesus escapes. We're not exactly sure how this all goes down, but Jesus crosses the Jordan to where John the Baptist had been baptizing before. And we also learn that many people followed him there. Isn't that interesting? Now, we have been reading about the hostility of the Jews. And we've already talked about the fact that that designation was a reference to the religious leadership, the Jews. But obviously there were others that were in the the hearing here who were listening to Jesus. There were others that heard the invitation that Jesus gave. There were others that looked at his claims and the evidence and they decided, we're going to follow you. We're going to find out where this guy goes and we're going to hear more. These compared Jesus' ministry to John's ministry and in the end, they believed Jesus' claims. They believed his claims were true and they trusted him. This is absolutely beautiful because it says, and many believed that day. Many believed. Yes, some didn't. Some were hard, some not been hearing a lot recently about the phrase follower of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that phrase. After all, that's what we are. I've heard it though as a reference to conversion though. And it's, and I think it's a bit confusing that the invitation to salvation is an invitation to follow Christ. I think this is somewhat of a, a bit of a um, newfangled kind of Christianese or a Christian way of talking, Christian lingo. I'm assuming that people that talk like this understand that one must believe and trust in Christ in order to be saved. Following the ways of Jesus doesn't save anyone, right? I think the, the last verse here in the, in the gospel of, of John 10 here makes this abundantly clear. Jesus offered the invitation. People followed Jesus. That didn't save them. Now notice, these people didn't just follow Jesus a little bit. They followed him a long way, across the Jordan. That was a big deal. And after they were there, they looked at Jesus. They heard his words. They heard his claim. They, they looked at his works, his signs, as John calls them. And it was after all of this that we read, and they believed. They trusted him for their salvation. Then they became followers of Jesus. Then they were true disciples. Primarily, Jesus was never after a people just to be moral. That's important. Purity is important. But primarily, Jesus' invitation was to come to him in faith, to trust in him alone for salvation. Then we can talk about what it looks like to be a disciple. I'm not suggesting that we never speak about what Jesus' demands of a true disciple are. But someone hearing that somebody hearing what that looks like and they're saying, hey, I'm willing. I I see what this looks like. I, I hear that 
Jesus was a good teacher that I should be like him. And they go and they, they try to follow Jesus. They try to be obedient. They try to become a follower. The problem is, is that doesn't save. We gotta be careful when we talk about this stuff. Yes, we're after followers of Jesus. Yes, we want people to follow him. But we want people to follow him in faith, in trust, in, a, in belief. Faith justifies Good works are evidence of saving faith. We need to put things in the proper category and we shouldn't confuse people by the way that we talk. Yes, we want people to become disciples, but they need to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray.